I think that's definitely a rebellious thing to do, to take an underdog and, and try to show the world that they should actually embrace this thing. Hello, you lovely humans. Welcome to the Live Outrageously with Lady Grey podcast. I'm your hostess, Lady Grey, and I have had the great honor to interview a number of super inspiring world changers about how they live outrageously. So we're going to share about how they push boundaries, they fight for change, and how they seriously shake up the status quo. Our goal on this show is to learn to live more outrageously, right? Well, this Friday, March 5th, is National Absinthe Day. And for those of you that know me, you know that I am a great lover of the Green Fairy. So I am very, very excited to introduce you to my guest today, the lovely Absinthia Vermouth. She started her journey with absinthe in the late 90s when she began as a bootlegger when it was illegal in the United States. She eventually founded Absinthia's Bottled Spirits in order to bring her organic absinthe to the market. She has since won six awards for her Absinthia Organic Absinthe Blanche Superior. We are very excited to have her here today to talk about all of her outrageous choices in her life. Welcome, 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 Absinthia. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Now, I know that you've had a pretty wild and outrageous journey because I've read a little bit of your story, but I want to start the show off by giving you the opportunity to share some of the highlights or the very big moments that you're most proud of. Ooh, that's a great question. The first one that pops to mind really is that evening in 2018, about a year after I finally launched the absinthe that I had been bootlegging for, oh, 20 years, 22 years at that point. And I checked my email just before I went to sleep and learned that my absinthe had won the gold medal in the San Francisco World Spirits competition. And in that moment, I went from an absent bootlegger to an award-winning absentor. And that was, that was quite the milestone. I'll that say that's moment. wonderful. Yeah, launching a liquor business in this country is a very challenging thing to do. And so, yeah, that's that was That's wonderful. A really great well, moment. we're going to get into it here. We're going to hear all about this story so that other people can enjoy it too. So why don't we start by having you tell us how you were first introduced to absinthe. I hear there's a story about Burning Man and some other things that maybe is worth exploring here. Yes, I first had absinthe at a San Francisco Cacophony Society party in 1996. The Cacophony Society is the group of pranksters, their slogan is you may already be a member, that originally brought Burning Man out to the desert from Baker Beach. And I was at this party in San Francisco, and there was this beautiful crystal bowl filled with this green liquid. I had no idea what it was. I heard it was absinthe. I didn't really know what that meant. I was kind of scared of it. And I eventually walked over and had a glass of it and just immediately took to it. It was a wonderful evening. It was a wonderful buzz. It was my favorite color. And the friend that had made it gave me the recipe. My first recipe was Everclear and some wormwood and anise tincture from a store in the Mission, a little bit of food coloring, and I served it at a party about four months later. 
And immediately my friends started calling me Absinthia. And that name has stuck. It is now all anybody calls me. It's my it's my legal name now. Wow. That's when I first had absinthe. And then suddenly 10 years later, it was legal. And I had to figure out what I wanted to do. I was making it for friends and family. And did I want to start this business? Did I want to go down this this rabbit hole? Turns out I did, but it so took another 10 years. Were your friends and family thinking, oh, that's a cute little like homebrew project that you have going? Or were they supportive? <laughs> were they on board? They were definitely on board. People would show up all times day or night. Do you have an extra bottle around I can get? I'm throwing a birthday party. Can I have a case of it? Can you come to this event in your fancy green dresses and serve it? No, they absolutely loved it. And I was one of a very small handful of people that made it possible for San Franciscans to actually have absence because it had been about 85 years at that point that it had been illegal. That was one of the things I loved about it. You started this thing. You were a bootlegger, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> and so I know a little bit, but but you're definitely the expert here. Why don't you explain to people about the history of absinthe being illegal and then legal in our country? Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it short because this is a topic that you could just discuss all day long <laughs> because it's so complicated. But the the French wine industry had a real problem in the mid-1800s when the grapevines developed phylloxera, which is a lice, and they had no French wine available for many years. That was at the same time that the French soldiers brought back absinthe from a war in North Africa, and absinthe became wildly popular. Happy hour was called the green hour, l'air vert in French, and absinthe, it got you drunk faster than wine. It was cheaper than wine. There was the whole ritual to it with the sugar cube and the spoons and the water fountains. It was beautiful and it was everywhere. When the French wanted to bring the wine back, nobody really cared much. Really, it came down to money and competition. The church had a little bit to do with it in that they needed people drinking wine because they had some money invested in it. And then along came World War One, and the French soldiers were sitting around smoking cigarettes and drinking absinthe, while the German soldiers were, were big buff beer drinking guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how absinthe became illegal. They blamed the wormwood which is one of the three, uh, the trinity of herbs, as we call them, absinthe must contain wormwood, anise, and fennel. And they blamed the wormwood for being hallucinogenic. Now, as it turns out, what they were really talking about was late stage alcoholism. Wormwood, once you distill it, is so perfectly safe. How did that then translate into legal versus not legal in the U.S.? Was that a government thing? Was it strictly locally that, that was enforced? Could you still buy it? Or was it just you couldn't produce it? What were the laws around that? No, that's a great question. As it turns out, absence actually been legal since the repeal of the prohibition. There was never a ban. There was really more of a misunderstanding of wormwood. And it was modern science in the early 2000s that proved that distilled wormwood is actually safe to ingest. And so it was just announced, you can now sell absinthe. So the ingredients have always been legal. I mean, wormwood grows wild in, in Golden Gate Park, but stores weren't allowed to sell it. 
and bars weren't allowed to serve it after the early 1900s. The exact date is escaped. Fascinating. No, it sounds like it's very closely entwined with history and a lot of world events. And one of the things that you may or may not know about me is I'm obsessed with vintage everything, music, art, whatever. And so green fairy art, there's so much. And I'm curious whether you're familiar with all of that. I know you have an art background. I do. It was actually art history, my own personal experience. So my my undergrad was in photography and art history from NYU. Hmm. And it was the study of art history in absinthe that really hooked me into absinthe itself. I started making absinthe and discovered that it had this whole amazing art history to it. It was hard to find because there was no internet at this time. This was the mid to late 90s. But there was a recently published book, The History of Absinthe by Barnaby Conrad, that got me down this just amazing research project of, of absinthe and art history. I've since been to the um, Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Picasso Museum in Barcelona. And there's just so much absinthe art. It's absolutely beautiful. And you can't see because this is just an a audio podcast, but I have a little green fairy pocket oh, watch. Oh, that fantastic. I wear. That's lovely. Well, and you said earlier that you have a green dress too. It sounds like you have an infamous green dress. I have many green dresses, including <laughs> some outfits made by one of your previous podcast guests, uh, Autumn Adam from the Dark mm-hmm. Garden, has made. Me I was actually going to ask you what your thoughts were. She was on and referenced Dark Garden, her shop as being a place that was welcoming to rebels. (laughs) And so I wondered if you would put yourself in that category of rebel with what you do. Absolutely. I think the thing I loved about absinthe was that it was illegal. That's what really (laughs) drew me to it. It was this illegal, misunderstood, there's so much anti-absent propaganda and I just felt like absent is really my muse and I just wanted to just scoop it up and take care of it and show the world that it's actually really safe to drink and it can be really delicious and it doesn't have to be bitter and it's not going to make you hallucinate. And I just wanted to let people know that it's this really wonderful thing. And I think that's definitely a rebellious thing to do, to take an underdog and, and try to show the world that they should actually embrace Absolutely. So what does a day in the life of a rebellious absinther look like? <laughs> uh, there's never two that are the same. I am either, you know, boring days chatting with my bookkeeper and working on the books of the business or Dealing with the TTB, my first label took 23 months to be approved at the TTB. There are days where, for example, this week I've been bottling and finishing up my new absinthe verts and came home and my hands were sore for about three days from trying to get the corks into the bottles. We do everything by hands. Working with my photographer, looking up vintage recipes, looking up different stories. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to do podcasts. Yeah. And it's fantastic because I feel like there are so many people that are 
afraid of it, right? It's not their first pick. They're not going to go to it. And some people are like, well, I don't like licorice, <laughs> you know, and they like blow it oh, off as being just this one dimensional thing, right? And the right. many, many bottles of absinthe of, of varying kinds that I have on my bar would speak to a completely different truth. What is it that makes it not everyone's first pick? What specifically do you think has happened over the years that's made people afraid and not want to try it? It really amazes me that we are more than 100 years beyond when the anti-absence propaganda started, and people still believe it. I do a lot of education as part of my career. When I do tastings at bottle shops, almost everyone who tastes it buys a bottle. When I'm not there and it's just sitting on a shelf, nobody even looks for absinthe. Mm. I have put over a hundred different absinthe cocktail recipes on my website to help show people when to, when to use it, how to use it, how to use it in a cocktail, how to drink it in a louche. Getting people to understand that this is just like any other alcoholic spirit. It's not scary. It's not licorice. And if you need a lot of sugar in your absence, chances are it's not very well crafted. So getting people to understand mm. the difference between a true well-crafted absinthe and a product that's really What I get. would love to know is more about absinthia your particular absinthe and what makes it special or unique? One thing I really wanted to do with my brands was be very different than a lot of the absinthe that are out there. They're based on the old understanding. A lot of them have a very dark goth appeal to them. They're, they're all about death. You see a lot of skulls and reference to, to death and alcoholism and all of that. And I wanted to create a brand that was very much alive and show people mm. that absinthe could actually be made out of really high quality ingredients. It was certified organic in the beginning. That was actually prohibitively expensive and time consuming. And I didn't want to have to pass all that on to my consumers. So we're still using all organic ingredients, but we no longer have that logo on the, on the bottles. But the bottles show a really beautiful sketch of Wormwood, which is actually one of my tattoos on my arm and my back. Uh-huh. All the ingredients are very, very high quality. So the grapes that we use are actually biodynamic grapes grown here in California. And we use organic Wormwood, anise, fennel, and coriander. That's for the blanche. And then for the vert, we take the blanche and we, we soak it in more organic herbs, three different organic herbs to get it green and strain it. So there's no sweetener. There's no sweetener needed when you drink it. It's got a natural sweetness from the grapes that we use. I just didn't think that people who were going to choose a high quality organic absinthe wanted to throw sugar cubes into their glass. Mm. So it doesn't need sugar. Uh, it's all organic. And um, it's just the, the feel of the brand is very much alive. For example, I recently recreated a Hemingway cocktail. Are you familiar with Absolutely, Death in the Afternoon? Yep. <laughs> Death in the Afternoon is champagne and absinthe. And it was the end of 2020, and we created a cocktail called Hopes and Dreams, where hopes is the champagne mm. and dreams is the absinthe. Because we, you know, at the end of 2020, it just, we didn't need a cocktail 
to celebrate called Death in the Afternoon, we needed hopes and dreams. Right. And that's my intention. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. I love that. I love that. It's interesting because I guess I realized that a lot of the labels are very skull and death oriented. In my mind, I think of it as the green fairy, right? I think of it as this beautiful artistic kind of feminine art, actually, more than many other liquors. I feel like absinthe has uh, an art built around it. The drinking of it is an art form and, and the ritual and all of that. So I think of it as a very beautiful thing to drink. But yes, now I'm thinking, ooh, I should look at the bottles on my bar and see how many of them have dark and somber <laughs> sort of tones mm -hmm. to them. So that's fascinating. That's very fascinating. You mentioned your vert, and when this episode comes out, it will be the week that we're also celebrating National Absinthe Day, so it's appropriate. How can people get a hold of your absinthe? Where can they purchase it? The best way to do it is go to my website, which is very easy to remember. It's absinthia.com, and you just click the shop button, and that will take you to my e-commerce site. We ship to, I think, currently 47 states. There's always a few states that it's not legal to ship alcohol into. Those are constantly changing. So if for any reason you can't ship to your state, that's state laws. And we really have no control over that. So I'm curious. You mentioned there was a little bit of a time a lag between when you made the Blanche and when you made the Vert. What was that due to? That was due to a, a whole number of different things. I got the Blanche out. I wasn't really happy with the Verit recipe, and we just kept working on it. Midway through, I switched distillers, which was a really complicated process. And the Verit label, similar to the Blanche label, took a long time to approve. It will. It says on the bottle distilled with herbs and spices, which is for some reason the phrase that the labeling agency at the, at the federal office, the TTB, liked. It sounds to me like it's <laughs> pie, not absinthe. But I got to the point where it didn't matter. I just wanted to have my label on my bottle and get it out. There's also you know, the issue of sourcing the right herbs. We use vintage recipes from Switzerland. And sometimes it's really hard to get the right ingredients and the right quantities mm. at the right time of year. So, you know, this really is a business that starts mm -hmm. on a farm. So, you know, we, we get everything from uh, several different farmers. Sometimes I'm looking for new farmers, new connections. We use uh, mostly fresh wormwood. And I've had issues where the wormwood has arrived, wasn't packed properly and arrived at the distiller mm. composted. And... You have to wait a whole nother year to get more wormwood. It can be really, it can be really challenging, but it was just a matter of everything come together. And one of the lessons I've really learned in making products is that they're going to come together when they want to, mm -hmm. not when I want mm -hmm. to. When did you know that this was kind of the leap of faith that you wanted to take? You were not going to pursue art history or whatever you had gone to school for, and that this was the path that your life was going to take. It took a while. When absence was first legalized in 2007, 
I was really shocked. I never expected it to be legal in my lifetime. And I had to think about whether I wanted to go down this road and start this alcohol business, go through all the headaches and hassles. And, you know, it's very expensive to get all the licensing in place. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And I spent a few years trying to write a business plan. And I spent a few more years trying to write a business plan. And it was really hard, especially with a background <laughs> in arts. And I ended up taking a course at the Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center in San Francisco. I won the best business idea in my class. And then I actually went back to school and I got my MBA because I really wanted to run this business right. And I wanted to be taken seriously. And one of the things as a woman in the alcohol industry is that people just don't take you seriously as a big boys club. And having that MBA has really helped with that. It's, it's of course, given me an education and the knowledge how to run a business, which is so important. But it was also a lot of the way people see me. They just really treated that's me fascinating we've talked a lot on this show about women and empowerment you know there's still so much discrepancy between our experiences and that of our male counterparts and what we have to do to prove ourselves we sure do we sure do i put mba on all my all my emails i put it on my business card and you know, when I first started out, I had a GM at a hotel. I mean, I felt like he was going to pat me on the head when he said, Yo, oh, you boy. started a business. <laughs> I don't get that anymore. <laughs> I'm also a very proud member of the Women's Cocktail Collective, which is an organization of women's spirit uh, brand owners. And it's a really wonderful, very collaborative. Is that a big group? I'm curious. There's about a dozen of us that are very active. It started with two or three women. I don't think there's more than 20 to 25 brands at this point. They are trying to keep the organization in such a way where I am the absent brand. So none of my, not that there's many other women absence makers out there, but I am the absent brand. There's the gin, there's the vodka, there's the bitters, you know, so it's really just one type of products for each. Well, and it's it's great that you have a community of people who are having the same sort of experiences within the industry. Maybe you do or don't want to share this depending on your secrets and how close to the vest you keep them. (laughs) My, my question is just, we talk a lot about outrageous dreams um, and things that are five, 10 years down the road or things that we haven't, really put a business plan around necessarily, right? But are like those big, extraordinary goals that you would like to do. Do you have any of those? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> My are you intention share? <laughs> is, I'm actually, I will share. Yes, yes. I would like to expand beyond absence. There's a lot of my research has shown me that in the hundred or so years where where wormwood was misunderstood and thought to be very dangerous, it was removed from products more than absinthe. Wormwood was obviously used in vermouth. Mm. Uh, It was used in Amaro's. Uh, I would like to create a gin with wormwood. I think uh, wormwood and juniper pair really well together. So I have actually worked with my designer and I have a whole line of bottles with different color liquid inside it. 
I'm releasing a barrel-aged absinthe in the fall. I'm struggling right now because I have a gorgeous butterfly pea flower absinthe, but the federal government hasn't decided whether they're going to allow butterfly pea flower in alcohol products. So there's a there's a whole investigation going on with that right now. But yeah, I ultimately would like to have eight between eight and 10 different organic products. That wow, I'm so excited. I just got really, really excited about the things I'm going to stock my <laughs> bar with. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you before, and I, I forgot to, as we got into what made Absinthia unique and your journey into it, you mentioned somebody gave you a recipe early on. What has been your experience with mentors and other people that have kind of helped you along this journey? Has it been very solo or have there been other people that have helped kind of hold your hand along the way? There's definitely been people that have helped along the way. I'm so grateful to them. And every once in a while now, someone reaches out to me that I can help, which is so awesome to be able to pay it forward like that. One woman that comes to mind is Allison Evano, who used to live in the Bay Area, and we would have lunch occasionally. She's the founder of Square One Organic Vodka and Botanicals and Syrups. Her strongest advice to me was not to get into this business because it's too hard and there's not enough money. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I can't help it. I'm like a writer who has to write or an actor who has to act. I have to do this absent. And she said, oh, God, okay. And she's one of the founding members of the Women's Cocktail Collective, and she's just always been fantastic. And working with my new distiller, he's been amazing to work with, creating new recipes and working to get new products out. And several bartender friends that I have with tastings and advice. And yeah, I mean, everyone's just always been very, very supportive. That is awesome. I think it it makes all the difference in the world, too, to have a circle around you uh, of people that, that mm-hmm. get what you're doing and fully support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is yeah. Part of it the really show is. Called Absinthia's Outrageous Advice. <laughs> and <laughs> this is your opportunity to share with people that are listening, what advice you have for them about how they can make their lives more outrageous. Maybe that's something very simple to do one time, or that's something they should do every day, whatever comes to mind. I was in Hawaii recently, which is where my daughter's currently living. And I was staying at this hotel and I would stop and talk to the bartender every night. And by the third night, he was like, you are so unusual. All your interests are so unusual. I have a pyrotechnic certification. I do fireworks. I am learning how to fire spin. I'm learning how to roller skate. I'm trained in Muay Thai. I make absinthe, right? So I do all these unusual and weird things. Of course, I've never been the type of person who would be very happy with a desk job and coming home to a safe house and the relationship and, you know, all all of that's just never really been my style. But I think following your passion is really, it's very simple. It really can change your life. If you want to try something new, if something intrigues you, don't be afraid to fail. You probably, this is a hard thing for me to to overcome in the beginning. You may not be very good at it in the beginning, but you just have to keep practicing. And if it's something you want to get good at, it will come. And if you're really passionate about it, I say, go for it. Follow your heart. Yeah. I feel like nobody was good at roller skating their first time. Like that's just not a thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I've discovered that it's not like riding a bicycle. I used to rollerblade all over Manhattan in, when I was in college. And now I'm trying to learn how to roller skate decades later. And it's tough. It's really hard. I'm curious really about fun. the first day of spinning fire <laughs> and not doing well with that. <laughs> like, what does that translate to and how dangerous is it? <laughs> I mean, I've been going to Burning Man for 25 years, you know, and I light off fireworks. So I feel like I know my way around fire. I wouldn't tell anyone just to pick up a fire stick and start spinning. <laughs> I've been practicing with poi, which are just glowy lights. So that helps. We also use white gas. And, you know, you're very careful what outfits you're wearing. You've, it's all 100% cotton, no metal zippers, nothing that's going to catch on fire. Put your hair back. All of those safety precautions are really, really important. But, you know, do be in a safe place, expect to drop it and move quickly when you do. <laughs> oh, my God, that's hilarious. I'm, we have several <laughs> members of my vaudeville company that are familiar and they're going to get a kick out of this conversation, I'm sure, when they hear this. <laughs> so I am not one of those people. I am not that coordinated <laughs> I'm a tap dancer. So if I could do it with my feet, oh, maybe, wow. but not with my hands. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I am what they call cross dominance. So I'm mostly right handed. I'm left legged because I started with Muay Thai, which is kickboxing. Mm -hmm. I'm southpaw or goofy foot or whatever you want to call it. If I had started with traditional boxing, I would probably be standard or orthodox. One of my first times with that actual fire and not with a poi, I realized that my left hand is better at it than my right hand. Again, it's a matter of experimenting and learning and trying and not being afraid to fail and following your passion, no matter how weird it is. I was drawn to absinthe because it was illegal. And I thought that was really cool. You know, why should I do what they say I can do and not what they say I can't do? And as it turned out, 10 years later, it was it was legal anyway. It never really needed to be. And like I mentioned before, they never had to change any laws or lift any bans. They just realized it was already safe based on the scientific uh, theories that they and tests that they had put it through. So don't be afraid. Follow your passion. Yeah, and that's definitely outrageous. If somebody's got a passion and it doesn't fit into societal norms, that doesn't mean to not pursue it because it's not right or good or okay or acceptable or whatever. Socially acceptable. Right. And then there's the whole gender bit to it as well. You know, like I said, I'm probably one of a very few number of, of female absence makers. It was about 45% women in my MBA program, but you know, that's relatively new as well. You don't find a lot of women at the dojo practicing Muay Thai. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't worry about it. I wholeheartedly agree. Right there on the same page with you. All right. So <laughs> now you get to tell me about your most outrageous fan or supporter. Who is the person you want to give a shout out to? Well, unfortunately, he passed away a couple years ago. Oh. But my most outrageous fan is Larry Harvey, the founder of Burning Man. He was one of the very first people to try my absinthe. I would serve at so many Burning Man fundraisers back when Burning Man was, was broke and struggling, although I guess it is again now because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I remember one evening I was preparing and I was out of a very important ingredient in the initial recipe. 
And I decided just to make it without. And I said, Larry, come taste this. And he was like, oh, that's better. He loved it. And so I stopped using that one. I can't even remember now what it was, but I stopped using that one ingredient. There's another story of him and a few friends. He just loved the absinthe. It was amazing. There's, so the story is that he and a couple of friends decided they had to find me. And they start walking around Burning Man together. Is Absinthia here? Do you guys know Absinthia? Is she in this camp? And as he would walk away, people would go, was that Larry Harvey? <laughs> <laughs> Just on a mission, on a mission for absence and on specifically on a mission for my absence, which is just really touching. That is really, really special. special. Well, that's fantastic. And hopefully Burning Man picks back up where it left off, right? And we get back to some <laughs> sense of what was before, I guess. Here's hoping it does in a in a safe way that makes sense Absolutely. for everybody. Absolutely. Looking forward to that shift. Uh, you mentioned this before, but I think it bears asking you again real quick so that it's sort of a nice bookend. If people are new to drinking absinthe and they want to learn more or they want to find you online or send you a message, what's the best way that they can hunt you down? My website is absinthia.com, and there's so many resources on there. There's an FAQ all about absinthe, the different colors, the different ingredients, the different rumors about it, some of the truths and histories, uh, some of the art history on that, as well as a recipe collection. So what my web designer and I created was a drop-down menu where you pull down the base alcohol, and that will give you – so you select gin – and up pops all the different gin and absinthe cocktail recipes oh, with photographs of fantastic. them. Fantastic. So the concept for that was that if you're if you have a bottle of absinthe on your bar and you have a bottle of something else, gin, champagne, aquavie, whatever it is, bourbon, you can just go to the website, select bourbon, and you'll oh, know what to do with really, it. Really, really fun. Then that's where you can buy the the absinthe as well. And as of March fifth. National Absinthe Day, the day that they said it was okay to start selling it again. So March 5th, 2007. Mm -hmm. So March 5th, 2021 will be the first day that you can buy my Absinthe Verit online, provided that all the all the gears and the wheels move in the right way. It's a very complicated <laughs> business. So the goal is to have the Absinthe Verit available on the website on absinthia.com March 5th. The, the launch is, has, has been available there okay. for over a year now. Fabulous. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so it's super easy for people to find. Before you go, uh, I would like to yes. ask you what your favorite Absinthe cocktail is. What would be your go-to? The Tuxedo Number 2. The Tuxedo Number 2 is part of a category of cocktails called improved cocktails. And what that means is that they're classic cocktails with maraschino liqueur and absinthe. So the tuxedo number two is a gin martini with maraschino liqueur and absinthe. And it's this gorgeous gold color. And it is so phenomenal. I'm checking what time it is. And if it's five o'clock somewhere right now, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have all those things just within arm's reach. So, Yes. So the, the recipe, again, is absinthia.com. Mm -hmm. Click recipes, select gin, and it's there. Gin is actually one of the things that absinthe pairs really, really well with. So there's a lot of recipes in the gin Beautiful. Category. Well, 
Thank you so much. This has been super, super educational. I feel like it's really fun and outrageous and people have probably learned a lot from you. It's funny because I don't think of myself as outrageous. Yeah, well, I think it's all relative, right? It's, there's, <laughs> I have what people I who come on the show all the time that say the exact same thing. And I think that is what makes their life so outrageous and fun is that they don't consider taking risks and dreaming big and going for broke as being outrageous. It's just a thing. Yeah. Yep. Listen, you exactly. are always welcome on my show anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for teaching us to live a little more outrageously. My pleasure. Cheers. Well, outrageous friends, it has been my honor and my pleasure to have you here today. I hope that you took away some outrageous ideas for your own life. If you enjoyed yourself, make sure that you're subscribed to Live Outrageously with Lady Grey on whatever your podcast app is. You can also connect with me personally on Facebook at facebook.com slash outrageousladygrey or on Instagram at lady.gray. Also, be sure to check out the website at www.liveoutrageously.com. Once again, this is Lady Gray encouraging you to go out and live outrageously.